First John chapter 3. Um, we've had a, a break from First John for a couple of weeks, so I'll just give you a brief overview of where we've come through in this, in this book. We've uh, covered chapters 1 and 2 already. Uh, in chapter 1, we asked the question, are you in fellowship? Uh, that was the question that we uh, addressed in, in that chapter. And we saw that God was light, and in him is no darkness. And uh, if we walk in the light of Christ, we have fellowship with God and also with other believers as well. John also introduces the idea that uh, just because a person says he's a Christian doesn't mean that he is one. A true believer demonstrates uh, a converted life, uh, not only in what he says, but also in what he does. Uh, that was chapter 1. In chapter 2, we asked the question, do you know that you know him? Uh, we went on to look at five proofs of a converted life, five things that people should see in our lives uh, that show we don't think and act like the world. As it says there in verse uh, 6 of chapter 2, he who says he abides in him ought also to walk just as he walked. Talking of Christ there, of course. Uh, so if you missed those five proofs, you can uh, get that sermon online, I think, and, um, and find out what those are. So we come now to chapter 3. Uh, and today, of course, is the first day of a new year. 2012 begins this year. Uh, as we talked about this morning, uh, some believe it might be the last <laughs> last year, according to the Mayans and that sort of thing. Um, but we know that uh, through our study of Revelation, which, we've, uh, which Scott took us through recently, uh, it could come at any time. Jesus could come back at any time. And so uh, 2012 could be the last year. It wouldn't wouldn't happen as the Mayans said. I don't think it's it's not going to happen like that, uh, not according to Revelation, but it could be the last year. So we need to think about things this year uh, that are important um, and live in light of the fact that 2012 could be the last year uh, for this world. So the question we want to ask today uh, from chapter 3 is, will you live like a child of the king in 2012? Now, as I said, a new year often leads us to do some planning. Uh, if you have a, a job, uh, if you own a business, or if you uh, work for somebody in management, or even if you're involved in ministry or homeschooling, or whatever you spend your days doing, it's always a good idea to do a little bit of planning. And usually at the beginning of the year, you want to sit down and do a little bit of planning so that you know what you want to achieve by the end of the year. Uh, if you're studying or whatever, you need to know what you what you need to learn by the end of the year. Um, for example, with our homeschooling, that's what we need to do. We need to sit down and figure out what we need to teach our kids before the end of the year um, so that they, they know what they need to know. And so planning is an important thing to do both uh, in our personal lives and, um, and also uh, in, in our work and business. Um, there's a saying in business, failing to plan is planning to fail. Um, and, uh, you know, it's an important thing to do. So often we make New Year's resolutions, don't we? Uh, you know, sometimes it'll be something like losing the extra weight we put on over Christmas, or uh, uh, it may be something like getting fitter, uh, getting a better job, uh, uh, getting a new qualification, uh, finishing projects that we started last year but didn't finish. And, and all these things can be good in themselves. Um, they can be harmless enough, but... Are they laying up treasure in heaven? So today I want to give us some New Year's resolutions that we can think about and put into practice this year. This morning I'd like to give us three New Year's resolutions to think about. 
uh, and uh, all from chapter 3. Firstly, I'd like to challenge us to marvel more at our salvation. And we'll look at verses 1 to 3 to see that. Secondly, I'd like to challenge us to demonstrate righteousness. And we will see that from verses 4 to verse 9 and also in verse 24. And thirdly, to love one another. And we'll have a look at verses 10 to 23, which uh, look at those things. Before we get into that, let's have a word of prayer together. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word that we can open it together this morning. Lord, I pray that you may uh, be with my lips, Lord, as I, um, as I uh, preach this morning. I pray that you may be with the hearers this morning, Lord, uh, that uh, you would bless to our understanding, Lord, the words of, uh, of your holy word. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you will help us this year, Lord, to plan uh, for spiritual things, Lord, to think about uh, what you'd have for us spiritually this year, what you'd have us to grow and learn and things that we need to spend our time doing, Lord. We just pray that you'll bless this time now, in Jesus' name, amen. So, first thing we want to do this morning, and the first resolution I'd like to challenge us with is to marvel more at our salvation. So let's read verses 1 to 3 together. It says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Love, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, though we know that when He is revealed we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. What a way to open this chapter. And what a thought to dwell on. Now upon salvation we are adopted into the family of God. We become children of the King. Adopted heirs of God's kingdom. What a transformation that is. For prior to salvation we were so poor and desperate. We sing the song Amazing Grace, probably the most well-known Christian song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And it's true. We were all wretched sinners before God. In Job 25, Bildad asks this question. I think that's on screen there. How then can a man be, be righteous before God? Or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? If even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is a maggot and a son of man who is a worm? How can a man be made righteous? How can a wretched sinner be transformed to such a position of privilege? For we were all sinners from the beginning. David says in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Ecclesiastes says, For there is not a just man on earth who does good, and does not sin. In Christ, each one of us have a, has a rags-to-riches story. Now, we love those stories, don't we? Somebody starts with nothing and ends up with everything. The kids like the movie Aladdin, you know, there's a street rat who ends up marrying a princess. And that's the story of a sinner's conversion. Miserable, destitute, hopeless, to become a child of the king. 
Often when we're talking about salvation, we use a, a metaphor, an illustration of a courtroom scene. And the defendant sits in the dock, accused and then convicted of sin. But before the judge brings down the gavel, before he passes the death penalty verdict, the judge's son takes the punishment. Where it would have been right uh, for us to be taken away and executed for our wrongdoing, the one who has done no wrong bears that punishment. Jesus takes that punishment for us. And often we, the metaphor stops there, but really it should continue. Because if it was not amazing enough that the guilty is set free, and all charges are then dropped, the judge then brings home the guilty one to be one of his very own children. Now if we put that into a human context, it kind of blows our mind. Justice would say, how on earth could a, a, someone who is a sinner go free? Surely it's not fair or right that one who is innocent should take the place of one who is guilty. If this happened in a Hamilton courthouse with a human judge and jury and, and uh, accused, bystanders would think the judge, judge had lost his mind to sacrifice his own son for, the, for a guilty lawbreaker, let alone to take that person home to be an adopted son. But this is what it is to be saved, to be born again. Do we spend time marveling at the glory of our salvation, the love that God has shown to us, his infinite grace that we should be called a child of God? Galatians 4, I've got that on the screen, says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God, through Christ. What an amazing God that we serve, that we should be given such a privileged position. Look at verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We can't see the fullness of Christ now. It's too much for us. Read of Paul, when he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, he fell to the ground before Christ's glory and was blind for three days. It's in Acts chapter 9. And in this age and in our natural bodies, we can't behold the fullness of Christ. But one day we will see him as he is. Our bodies will be renewed and our sinful state will be dealt with and we will be pure and holy. And as John says, we don't. We can't possibly know all the details of what that will be like. But what a joy it is to live in the light of this hope. Verse 3 says, Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. As a believer, we should meditate on three things. Where we have come from, where we are now, and where we are going. We were a guilty sinner, condemned to death, with no hope, except for the precious cross of Christ. And now through faith in him, we have the greatest privilege available to a person on earth, to be called a child of God. Finally, Looking forward to our future, we will be made to be like him, 
able to see the fullness of Jesus, our Saviour, face to face for all eternity. These truths should fill our hearts with gratitude, with a profound anticipation of what's to come. Reflecting on these things and living in light of them in 2012 will create a desire to purify ourselves, as it says in verse 3. To live as purely as we possibly can, not relying on our own strength or will, but in reliance of God's transforming work in our lives. So will you this year marvel at your salvation? I challenge us all to plan to do just that, to deliberately set aside time to study God's word, to think about how great a salvation we have been given. And this will result in a life overflowing with gratitude and thankfulness, no matter what hardships are ahead in this year. Secondly, I want to see and challenge us to demonstrate righteousness. Let's read verses 4 to 9. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. Sin it's a three-letter word that is the biggest problem in the world today. For those without Christ, sin will result in their destruction. For those few believers in our world today, sin is a fierce battle that we fight every day. You know, we've seen in the last couple of weeks uh, a horrible event in Turing and the terrible result of unchecked sin. And as New Zealanders are outraged at a 16-year-old boy's attacking of a little five-year-old girl, it's no doubt horrible. And we are shocked by it. And the country is an outrage by it. But how many have the same response to their own sin? The same sin that dwells in the heart of that boy lies in every heart. It's only through faith in Jesus can a wicked and sinful heart be converted to a righteous one. Verse 4 tells us the definition of sin. Sin is lawlessness. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. To sin just once is to break all of God's law. It's like a line in the sand that God says, do not pass, and yet we rebel. We tell God we know better and we will do what we want. Sinful hearts push us to break the rules. We don't want to conform to anyone and what they want us to do, let alone God. You know, if you ever see a, a sign that says, wet paint, don't touch, what's the first thing you want to do? We're told not to walk on the grass, or don't speed, don't talk in class, don't run. The first thing we want to do is the exact opposite of what we're told to do. It's because we have a sin nature. We won't defeat the nature that's within us uh, until we are absent from this world and present with the Lord. But we can have that sin taken away. Verse 5 says, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. 
Jesus bears away our sin. Just as the garbage truck comes to our house and takes away our rubbish and never brings it back to us again, so Jesus takes away our sin. And in that way, and this is the way that uh, John is talking here, we do not sin. John is not saying here that we will be sinless, but that we will be sinless in our standing. We're justified upon salvation. While English is never my strongest subject, uh, it's important to notice the word commits here. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And the tense of that word is ongoing, habitual sin. And that ties in with the other things that we've seen from John chapter 1 and 2 and in later chapters as well. It's, it means a truly converted person will not live in the continual, habitual practice of sinning. And we can see that explained in verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. It's the practice of our lives. The saved person is not without sin, but the sin is an occasional stumbling rather than a way of life. One person put it like this, the unsaved man sins and relishes it. The saved man sins and regrets it. A subtle difference there, but a profound difference in our, the way that we live. And it begs the, quest, begs the question, which one are we? Do we enjoy sin, or do we regret our sin when we stumble? Do we confess it to God and ask for forgiveness? We see here in these verses the contrast of Jesus and righteousness on one side, and Satan and lawlessness on the other. Everyone in this world is born into lawlessness under Satan. Verse 8 tells us that for this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Our own best works are still works of the devil. We can do no righteous, no righteous works, but through Christ we can practice righteousness. What we do speaks of our position as one who is born of God. I think every single one of us would admit to needing improvement in this aspect of our lives to, to practice righteousness. When others look at our lives, do they see a righteous life? Do we look different from those people around us, whether we're at work or at school or at uh, training or jobs, wherever we are, do we look different? Do we stand out or do we blend in? If we are practicing lives of righteousness, we should stand out. We should be different. Third thing this morning that we want to um, challenge ourselves with is to love one another. Let's read verses 10 down to verse 23. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life, because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. 
and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. John makes it very clear here. One of our strongest evidences of faith, one of our greatest tools of testimony to the world and around us, is our love and care for each other. How we treat fellow Christians is vitally important. Verse 11, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Seems like a fairly extreme example, doesn't it? Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 4. We'll just have a brief look at this account. Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel, now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should roll over it. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond shall you, shall you be on the earth. Now over the years, many people have tried to claim that sin comes from a person's environment. The people are basically good and that crime and wrongdoing is the result of something that happens to a person when they grow up. Uh, that society or family or poverty or uh, some random act that happened to them drives a person to commit crime and to sin. But I think the story of uh, the event of Cain and Abel shows that this is uh, not true. And I think there's been many other studies also which prove the fact that that's not true. But Cain couldn't have come from a better pedigree. He came from the only other two people other than Jesus Christ who could at some point claim a sinless existence. He could commune with God, 
And we see here, even after killing his brother, he could speak to God as if he was speaking to a man. The environment he grew up in was fallen, as it is today, but far closer to perfection than the world we now live in. He had no bad influences on his life. There was no media. There was no uh, schools telling the wrong thing. There was no peer pressure to lead him into doing sin. There was no TV, movies, all those sorts of things which are bad influence on people's lives. No drugs, things which also influence. Nothing other than his own sinful heart and Satan's prompting to evil. And so Cain here, is a, his example is a supreme one. Both Cain and Abel were asked to bring offerings to God. Both brought the works of their hands. But God was pleased with Abel's offering and not pleased with Cain's. And if we didn't have uh, these verses in John, and if we just read the Genesis account, it's difficult to see why God had no pleasure in Abel's offering. But John here says that Cain's offering was evil. Why was it evil? Because Cain was not a child of God. He did not have a relationship with God. Whatever sacrifice he had bought, it could not be anything but evil. Now even though Cain could talk to God, even though he went through the motions of bringing offerings to God, he was not walking with God. He was not a child of God. Perhaps Cain was proud. Perhaps he looked at Abel's offering and thought, well, I can do better than that. Perhaps he focused on the size of the offering or the way it looked. Maybe he viewed the offerings as a competition to be won. All we know is that his heart was not trying to serve and worship God. His offering did not come from a place of relationship, of thanks and of worship. And when God was not pleased, we see Cain's true emotions coming out. He turns angry. Even despite God's warning, his contempt for Abel grows and he feeds it with anger until he finally kills Abel, his brother. When God confronts uh, Cain with what he had done, he immediately lies. He tries to cover up what he's done. He says he doesn't know where Abel is. You know, we learn this at a, at a young age, you know. Kids are a perfect example of that. We ask, who is it that drew on the wall? And they all profess innocence. They try to lie and cover up the sin. But even as adults, we do the same thing. Cain's anger and unrepented sin snowballs to murder. So how true it is when Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The unregenerated life is capable of the worst kinds of sin. And just as it is true that society doesn't drive people to sin, it's equally true that society can often be the only thing that holds sin back. If you look at countries where there is no, uh, where there's no law and authority, uh, terrible atrocities happen in these countries. If a man can get away with something, he will do it. And so often the only th threat of imprisonment is the only thing that keeps some resemblance of morality in a culture. Cain despises Abel's uh, offering because Abel, was his works were righteous. Abel walked with God and that got right up Cain's nose. He despised the fact that Abel pleased God. And it's true for us as well. John warns us here, and uh, do not marvel 
my brethren, if the world hates you. The world can't stand to see holiness in action. Your righteousness, when displayed to others, will be offensive. You need to be prepared for that reaction. Abel may have not had any idea of the feelings that Cain had towards him. For Abel's offering had been between him and God. But Cain despised him for it anyway. And so it is that if we live lives that are purer than those around us, because we're walking with Christ, it may be, well be noticed and despised. Often people are happy for us to be religious. They may know we go to church and they don't mind you believing whatever you believe. But if we ever start to witness, everything can change. If we say that Jesus is the only means of salvation, as the Bible proclaims it, if we say that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, if you begin to tell them that according to the Bible that they are sinners, unable to live a righteous life, it's offensive. People can start to get angry. You know, sometimes we can preach this, this message even without opening our mouths, just by our actions. If your life shows that their life is one that is given to sin, John says, don't be surprised if they'll hate you for it. The contrast here is a true Christian whose conversion has resulted in a love, results in a love for the saved around them. It says there in verse 14, we know we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. Holy living is no longer an offense but something that we aspire to and something that we uh, enjoy, receive joy from. I'm reminded of how John was an old man here. He says there, my little children, what a blessing it is to be around older, godly men and women. There's just something about someone who's walked with God for decade after decade. Someone who's been through the ups and the downs of life, but have clung to their saviour. You know, these people are a pleasure to be around. They're always ready to uh, share scripture to the, to the uh, saved or the unsaved. As John became older, the love for the brethren became more and more of a focus of his life. And what was his example of love? Verse 16 says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. Where do we find true love? The world will tell us one thing about love, but it's not the truth. True love is what Christ did on the cross. The cross shows us the supreme definition of love. On the cross, Christ sacrificed himself for the good of others. He humbled himself. He took on a punishment that was not his to bear. It was ours. But he endured it because he loved so much. And this is the measure we need to use. This is the level of love that we need to have for each other. In verse 16 it says there, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. What a test that is. Would we take a bullet for each other? You know, if a gunman was to come in here this morning, would we sacrifice or be willing to sacrifice ourselves? It's a tough question to answer. In a heroic gesture we might say, sure, sure I'd do that. But John poses another scenario would you open up your wallet and give money to somebody in need? A brother and sister in Christ who has a need. Verse 17 says, But whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need 
and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? It's often easier to claim a grand gesture because the likelihood is it will never happen. But what about something practical like giving financially or giving our time to each other? Are we so grand in our offerings then? In verse 18 we're told not to love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Probably heard the saying before, but our walk talks louder than our talk talks. It's not what we say that matters, but it's what we do. Romans 12.9 says, uh, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Sometimes our love can be superficial. We can be friendly to each other when we're face to face and then stab each other in the back when we're not around. And that is the hypocrisy Paul is warning against to the Romans church. The very definition of hypocrisy is words being denied by our deeds. We need to avoid that kind of uh, show of love. But instead, our love should be like it says in 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Here's the definition. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things hopes all things, endures all things. We are called to give each other our time, our talents, our money. As it says there though, the mere giving is not enough, for we can give with false motives. We can give with hypocrisy, looking to gain something in return or feel proud in some way. That's not to be our motivation. We should not be puffed up, but we should be driven by love for the brethren. Why? Because Christ loved us. You know, I think in this church we have a good spirit of love. But it's one of those areas that you can never let rest on your laurels. You can always do more. In 2012, we can love each other more than we did in 2011. And if we do, if we do love each other, if we show love to the brethren, it'll be a source of reassurance in our lives. Verse 19 says, And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Verse 20, John tells us there are two dangers that we need to be aware of. The first is that we are indifferent to our sin. Our hearts are cold towards the wrong that we do. And this may mean that we're not a true Christian at all. The other extreme is that we have an overdeveloped sense of guilt over sin that we feel guilty of it from our sin, and this attitude can rob us of our glory, of our joy, sorry. And that is what John is talking about here in verse 20. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. The truth is, whichever side of the ditch we fall on, God is greater than our emotions or thoughts. And uh, The DVD mentioned that this morning. We should analyze our thoughts more than our 
what we feel. Sometimes our thoughts and emotions can lie to us. We need to be aware that God is greater than our hearts. The truth of the gospel trumps how we feel. Sometimes we may pray for forgiveness and not feel forgiven. But we can claim the truth of 1 John 1.9 and know that through Christ we are forgiven, even if we may not feel it. If we stand entirely on the truth of God's word, that gives us confidence. As a child has confidence to ask anything in the world off their parent, so we have the confidence to ask our Heavenly Father for those things that we will. And we have confidence that he will answer those prayers. Verse 21 says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. The commandments are this, and this is the command, his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. God commands us to believe in Jesus, to love each other, to live righteously. But as believers, we're not left to do this all alone. Our assurance and our spiritual growth is all made possible by the Holy Spirit abiding in us. Verse 24 says, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he gave us. And so as we look ahead to the year 2012, I pray that we will com sort of commit ourselves to these three New Year's resolutions. To marvel more at our salvation, to live in light of it, to practice righteousness as, as we have been saved to do, and to love one another. I pray that this morning, that at the end of this new year, we'd be able to look back and see much progress in our lives in these areas for the glory of God.